Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. When we put this series together, we looked at the calendar and said we need one weekend to pray for our country. And uh, the message is directly related to that. Here's where the subject came from. If you'll pick up your little sermon outlines and look at them, you will see that it's directly related to an incident in the founding of our country. Dr. James McHenry was the youngest delegate in the 1787 Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. Benjamin Franklin was the oldest man there. After they had finally put together a document that's probably close to second only to the Bible, the Constitution of the United States, Dr. Franklin came out of the meeting and he was met by a certain Mrs. Powell. We don't know her first name. <clears throat> Dr. McHenry didn't have that in his notes. And she asked Dr. Franklin, well, what do we have? A monarchy or a republic? <clears throat> Dr. Franklin replied, we have a republic, madam, if we can keep it. Recently, <clears throat> when I was in New York, I was privileged to meet a fellow that I'd met once before. He's an author, and he has a new book out, and it is entitled, If You Can Keep It. It's talking about the republic, talking about what came into existence as a result of the Constitution of the United States. It was an unusual document. All of those men, the 55 delegates and a secretary who was taking notes, that's why there are 56 signers instead of 55. One was a secretary who verified that what they had was what had taken place. They all had a deep respect for the Bible, even, and they had a great knowledge of the Bible, even though some of them were not Christians. That's especially true of someone like Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin. And you'll learn a little more about Franklin in particular as we go on this morning. A passage of scripture that kind of sets the context for freedom, and that's really what we're talking about, is in the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John. <clears throat> Jesus is talking, and he says, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, Well, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves to anyone. Now, that was a lie. They had been slaves to the Egyptians for X number of years. They were actually in Egypt 430 years. 
what exact number they were slaves we don't uh, years we don't really know and then they went ahead and asked Jesus because they were giving him a hard time how can you say that we shall be set free Jesus replied tell you the truth everyone who sins is a slave to sin now a slave has no permanent place in the family but a son belongs to it forever the son meaning himself Jesus goes ahead to say so if the son sets you free you will be free indeed I have said and will repeat because it's a deep-seated conviction that aside from your salvation there isn't anything more precious that we enjoy other than freedom itself to be free is something very special that not many people in the world really know so what did he mean when he said we have a republic if you can keep it and our emphasis is on how do we keep the republic it was Abraham Lincoln who referred to that when he was getting ready to go give his inaugural address he referred back to the very fact of the founding of the, our nation and the writing of the Constitution and those 55 delegates who were there when he said four score and seven years ago and then he ended up by saying what probably all of you know but probably don't take seriously when he said that government of the for the and by the shall not perish from this earth Lincoln knew at the time that it was in danger of perishing even then when he was facing the fact that as he was inaugurated several states had already withdrawn from the Union that group that initially met several of them became presidents of the United States George Washington was the first George Adams second Thomas Jefferson the third among those initial delegates there was a lot of tension serious tension for instance James Madison thought that both the House and the Senate should their delegates should be directly related to the number of people in their state those 55 delegates were representing 13 states and their primary reason for being there was to represent those 13 states each of which operated almost as an independent country Alexander Hamilton on the other hand thought that the presidents the president and the senator should be appointed for life well obviously both of those men had to compromise because neither got what they wanted for the president was to serve his four-year term they didn't have a number of how many at the time the Senate six and the House of Representatives two years now it's called an, an American experiment why because something like this a nation 
based on these principles, had never been in existence before. This was a totally new thing. What was new about it? What is the concept that is totally new? It's that we were to become a self-governing people. Now, it had been tried before. If you know something about ancient history, you know that the Greeks tried a democracy, on, but they only had what was called city-states, like the city of Athens was surrounded by a wall, and that was called a city-state. There were others. And they could, in that small atmosphere, could have a democracy, but that soon gave way because there developed a guy by the name of Philip of Macedon who had a son who became probably the most successful and brilliant soldier and conqueror in the history of the world. His name was Alexander the Great. Under both Philip of Macedon and Alexander, the democracies turned into monarchies. They were absolute tyrants and had total authority. But what we established here was an interesting thing. A people free of excessive government and excessive and controlling religion. For you see, when they came from a Europe, every country there politically had a monarchy and religiously had a monarchy too because the Roman Catholic Church is a monarchy ruled by the papacy, by the Pope himself. Absolute authority when he speaks ex cathedra as the head of the church. They wanted to be free. And so they came to this land, a prosperous land, in order to seek freedom. Now they all knew one thing and all agreed on one thing. All of these religious leaders agreed on one thing. Humanity is a fallen race, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, some government was necessary. But the least amount of government that you could possibly have was to be preferred to stay away from a monarchy. And a totally free church, where the government had absolutely nothing to say to the church, was what they desired. They wanted to be free. But all of those men who founded it were strongly influenced by the contents of the Bible. Actually, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson both were well acquainted with the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament. So what was necessary to make this fragile thing where there's just enough government so that you don't have anarchy and not so much that it becomes intrusive where they stick your nose when the government sticks its nose where it doesn't have any business? One of the things that became absolutely necessary, and all of them agreed on it, was this. The citizenry had to be people of virtue. For you see, a strong government isn't needed where people are virtuous. Because they're not going to do a lot of bad things. There are going to be a few bad ones, so you have to have some government. And all of us are a little bit bad, so you have to have a little bit of government. So when you look at the 13th chapter of the book of Romans, it says that the concept of government is a good thing and ordained of God simply because 
The citizenry is made up of sinners who have come short of the glory of God. But into this, into this circumstance came someone that probably most of you have never heard of before. He was a preacher. Oh, what a preacher. He was so good that the churches of England chased him out of their churches. Now that's what you call a good preacher. Their churches were so boring and total. And, and you see, the problem was that they were actually an extension of the arm of the government. And he wanted to be free to preach the Bible, and he didn't care who didn't like it or who did. That's what you call a good preacher. His name was George Whitfield. He wasn't much to look at. He wasn't a hunk like me. Now, you guys are picking on me. I haven't even got started good. Actually, George Whitfield was cross-eyed. So cross-eyed that you couldn't tell who he was looking at when he was talking to you. But when he stood up to preach, who cared? His message was this. Everybody is a sinner and need to be born again. He was so passionate in his preaching that sometimes he would break down and cry for two or three minutes. The stayed churches didn't want someone like that. But the people did. And he would, he would go into a field or into a city to preach and 20,000 people would come and hear him and they could hear every word that he spoke without the benefit of these things. Benjamin Franklin actually did an experiment when he said it's possible if the acoustics were just pretty good that 30,000 people could hear every word that he said. He was so impressive that, that Dr. Franklin, who was not a Christian but who was sympathetic to the Christian cause, printed his sermons on the front of each of copies of his paper, and that, was, that periodical that, that he printed was the most widely circulated document in the 13 colonies. That's, a, that's the way Benjamin Franklin became very wealthy. He preached the new birth. He preached, listen to this, he came, when he came to the United States, he was already a celebrity. When he got off the boat in New York, there were already 4,000 people waiting to see him. In the 33 years that followed, he preached 18,000 sermons. And his message never changed. You must be born again. He wasn't concerned about denominations and congregations. He was concerned that lost people be saved. He was so good at taking offerings that I wish he'd show up here again. <laughs> Dr. Franklin said, and he expressed this to his friends, he said, you go here, Whitfield preach, but leave your pocketbook at home. And he told the story of how he at one time, because Whitfield didn't keep the money for himself. He was raising money for orphanages that John and Charles Wesley had begun, and he was sending money to them. Franklin said, I had in my pocket some copper coins, some silver coins, and some gold coins. And I had determined that when he took the offering, I would give him the copper coins. 
Before he finished, he had the copper, the silver, and the gold. So he said, leave your money at home or he'll get it. How we need him here really bad, you know. He preached, though, for the kingdom of God and the result of his preaching, because he was in all of the colonies, he rode thousands of miles. He not only preached 18,000 sermons, he preached 12, there were 12,000, as he called them, talks and exhortations. He was like Billy Graham when one guy, Matthew told me, when one guy went to, Billy Graham was sitting in a restaurant reading the paper and, and eating his meal and a guy walked up to him who just wanted to meet Billy Graham and Billy Graham looked up at him and he said are you saved are you born again that was George Whitfield and his message so permeated the colonies that they they ceased to be just people from North Carolina or New York or the Catholics all went to Maryland They ceased to to see that they were just members of a state. And for the first time in the history of this land, they all became Americans. And it came as a result primarily of the preaching of George Whitfield. He was that influential and his message accomplished that much. And so the, uh, the founding of our country can be largely accredited to the preaching of the Bible. They had a church that was, by government edict, free from government interference. Because they had come from England, they had come from what's in the English church, the the Church of England, it's called the Church of England because it's as an extension of the government of England. The head of the Church of England, titular head of the church, is the queen. In Germany, where my brother lived, he lived right next door to the to the Lutheran Church, which is the official church of Germany, and the preacher is paid by the government. So guess what? He's nothing more than an extension of the government. Here they're saying, we want a church that is free where the preacher can preach the Bible and let the chips fall where they may. Government paid preachers, not a good thing. But that's what they had. So this unity came as a result of the preaching of George Whitfield, and his church historians call it the Great Awakening. And so America, though it may not be referred to just as a Christian nation, was founded certainly on Christian principles and came into existence primarily as a result of the preaching of the gospel. There was another, only one other great awakening in our country's history. Now you ought to be able to figure out where it was or where it began as a result of me telling it. Because it happened in Kentucky. Outside of Paris, Kentucky, there's a little community called Cane Ridge. There was a small Presbyterian church there and it was Communion Sunday, because the Presbyterians, like some of the other churches, just have communion every once in a while because they don't want to be like the Catholics. 
And so several churches in the surrounding area came to Cane Ridge to celebrate communion together. But what happened is people just kept coming. They came from the Baptists, they came from the Presbyterians, they came from the Pentecostals, they came... The people of God came in one place and 20 or 30,000 people gathered there and, the, and they had a revival that lasted for weeks. Preachers everywhere preaching and people out of repentance falling on the ground and screaming and yelling and turning to God in great numbers. The Great Awakening repeated again. What were the essentials then for the success Dr. Os Guinness says that if we're going to keep what those founding fathers gave us, which I think is more important than anything other than our salvation, and since I'm doing the preaching, that's what I'm going to say. Freedom is a wonderful thing. Dr. Os Guinness put together a thing he calls the golden triangle. He says that freedom requires faith. Or, pardon me, freedom requires virtue because I said it could only exist if there were a virtuous people. If you never exceed the speed limit when you're driving, you will never need a state patrolman. But we need state patrolmen because some of you drive like idiots. A virtuous people, there's actually, and I have, a, I have a DVD of it, and I've showed it to some people of a, of a place of a community in Central America where the gospel was preached and everybody in the community was saved. Everybody. They closed the jail. The sheriff was nothing more than a well-paid citizen who did nothing except walk around town and talk to people. That's an exceptional situation that granted. But a virtuous people do not require a lot of government for them to maintain a functioning and free and safe society. Virtue, he says, requires faith because people become virtuous through the preaching of the gospel and the converting of their heart and the, and the obedience to the Bible that says we're to be obedient to the law. That's what the Bible teaches. And faith requires freedom, and then you go right back and start all over again. It's a circle. And Dr. Guinness says that if any one of these legs, like a three-legged stool, is missing, the whole system collapses. The keeping of the republic requires a virtuous citizenry. And a, a virtuous citizenry comes not as a result of laws by the government, but through obedience to God. That's called faith. And faith, because the Bible teaches it, creates an atmosphere of freedom. And freedom, in my opinion is as valuable as anything other than your salvation. Well, what are the enemies of this republic that we're, that we're trying to keep, as Dr. Link, as Dr. 
Franklin said, if we can keep it. What, what would cause it to collapse? Number one, monarchies. Monarchies is a one-man rule. One man has absolute authority. There was a danger of that when our country started because the first president was George Washington, who was so popular that he could have been king if he had chosen to be. He could have been a monarch. But after he ran and served, he voluntarily stepped down to avoid even the appearance of a monarchy. Thomas Jefferson was asked one time, well, why didn't you choose to succeed George Washington? Jefferson replied, I don't want to be the man who follows Washington. I want to be the man who follows the man who followed George Washington because Washington was so popular. Jefferson didn't do badly himself. For you see, all of the people who founded our country had come from both a religious and a governmental monarchy, and they knew its evils. And the second thing, <coughs> excuse me, the second thing may be a word that you're not really familiar with, but it's a very important one for our culture today. The word is globalist. In years in past, we simply referred to these people as those who wanted a one-world government and would do anything to get it. Do you know what the dirtiest word in the vocabulary of a globalist is? It is absolutely profane to repeat it. The word is patriot. They cannot stand patriotism or nationalism. They think if all of the borders of all of the countries were to disappear, we would all become one people and it would be ruled by the United Nations and that's the way it should be. And there are lots of people. They are well financed because multinational corporations provide them with tremendous amounts of money. The sad thing is that we have been exposed to a lot of it without people being told. And this, this, is far, this includes both of our major political parties. You may not be aware of it, but you should be. Most major universities, most major universities teach globalism. The ones that are the worst are the best known. Harvard, Columbia, Princeton, Yale. All of those Ivy League schools are strong promoters of globalism, which is another word for socialism. They're all socialists. We'll talk a little more about that in a minute. But listen carefully. Both of the Bushes went to Yale University and were globalist. The Clintons went to Yale University and they're globalist. 
Obama went to Harvard. He went to Columbia and then to Harvard. And he's a, and, and, and in case you wonder why do they, does he does he take some of the positions that he takes? He's a globalist. He he really believes, and all of these folks sincerely believe. They honest are in their belief that we would be better off if there was one world government. And they promote it any way they can, as best they can. But you see, all of this has been tried before. And it was a monumental failure. All through the 19th century, the primary preaching was this. It was based on a flawed theology. And it came from pulpits all over the land. It was called post-millennialism. And it assumed that mankind is essentially good. And so, good mankind... The churches then could unite with the government and create the kingdom of God on earth, and then Christ would come and rule over that kingdom for a thousand years. That's what postmillennialism is. And in conjunction with that, they started in Europe, and our president supported it. His name was Woodrow Wilson. He was the he was the ex-president of the uh, of Princeton University. He supported what became known as the League of Nations, which was the precursor of what we call the United Nations, in which the world was to be come together and Christ would rule over the world through the League of Nations. Now you say, well, I've never heard of that. Well, that's because you can't read. It's really there in any history book that hasn't been written in the last 20 years. You have to go back a piece to get it. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. The League of Nations came about during the First World War, which was known as, in the history books, as the War to End All Wars. That's what it was called. The problem is it didn't. For there rose up a Hitler, a Mussolini, a Tojo, a Mao Zedong. They're, these are evil monarchs who want to rule the world themselves. And so a second world war came along, a Korean war came along, and all these other wars, because the Bible says there will always be wars and rumors of wars, and the Bible always proves to be right. I told some people when I started, I intended to tick both the Republicans and Democrats off really good today, and I hope I have. Because I would rather you, care, I would rather you go clear back and I'm a registered Republican, but I'm going to go back and quote who may be my favorite Democrat in my lifetime, and that was John Kennedy who said, Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And it's about time we asked that question and took it seriously. Because we're in trouble of not keeping what we have been given. And there are strong influences in great positions of power, who want to control the church, who want to take away all, any representation of Jesus Christ in the public arena. They want things that refer to God taken off of public buildings. They want the Ten Commandments to disappear. They want the Bible out of schools. They want churches only to be effective within the church building. Don't take it outside. I'm here to tell you, it's time we invaded our world for Jesus Christ. It is time we did it.
The other enemy is a group of folks that you've probably never met one of them, but they're anarchists. These are the people who don't believe there should be any government at all and they should be able to do whatever they want to do. You saw some of them in that horrible situation out in Missouri. You saw it on Wall Street. These are people who somebody rich people paid to be there who are anarchists and they just want to do away with government, period, and they want to divide people among themselves for it. A divided people cannot stand. In order to achieve their ultimate goals, these enemies of a free society, of a self-governing people, and that's what we were set up to be, history has to be rewritten, and it's in the process of being done. Now, those of you who are teachers, I love you. I taught myself. My wife was a teacher. My mother was a teacher. But let me tell you something. The National Education Association is the worst influence on our school system and on our country than any other bureaucratic organization in the United States. They are pushing the globalistic system. And so what they've done with their influence is they've taken all of our heroes out of history. They've rewritten history. They're putting out something that is anti-American and getting away with it. I believe the time has come when we need the churches need to sacrifice however they need to do it. Christians need to sacrifice and make sure their children go to a Christian institution where they'll be exposed to the Bible because if the Bible is believed and practiced, these folks can't get away with what they're trying to do. I know it's expensive to send your mass talking to the coach up at Cedarville. He's here this morning. We were talking about some basketball players who are Christians who, who need some, they're from Jamaica, they need some financing. We, I mean, we need some big bucks. Or they're going to end up going to a pagan school and they're Christians and they'll be corrupted. You need to make sure that if you have to hawk your house and drive, listen, my kids, they look at Alice Kay and me and they think, you know, and, and we, we have, you know, Alice Kay drove 14 years to Columbus and back every day. I drove, I went all over the world, didn't take money from the church. We saved money. We were the primary contributors to our church for years. And we became well-to-do. And we're having a lot of fun giving it away now. And when I die, I hope to be poorer than Job's turkey. Because I hope I've given every dime of it away. I told my children, don't you look for anything. We put you all through college. You all got out of college without owing a dime. Some of you got three, three, three degrees, and some of you went crazy by degrees. You know, so you're not doing anything. You all have good jobs. All of our grandchildren who are graduated have good jobs. So Alice Kay and I ought to be able to give everything away we want to. And we intend to. So that you had, in order to achieve these enemies of a free society, of a self-governing people, have to eliminate the influence of history and heroes. If you were to write down today, who do you think, who is your hero? Who's your hero? Well, I lean toward Abraham Lincoln and my daddy. I think Lincoln was the greatest president we ever had, and I, I think I can build a case for it. But our social study, see, in, in, in school, 
history, geography, those things have been replaced with something called social studies that are put together by social scientists. And they're not scientists. They've actually rewritten history. And, they, and, and when they look at George Washington, they say he was a bad guy because he owned slaves. So they write him off. Thomas Jefferson had an affair with one of his slaves and had a daughter, so we write him off. We go through, and we find everything wrong with these guys. But I'm here to tell you they were among the greatest people who ever lived, and they gave us the greatest gift other than our salvation that we'll ever have, and that is a free people in a wonderful land. Now, we talk about sometimes a term, American exceptionalism. Now, let me, let me tell you something. And they're bad, and these bad guys, I call them the bad guys because I, I don't like them. They badmouth the, the, the phrase American exceptionalism. Now, let me tell you where the, Amer the term came from. An American didn't call us American exceptional. He didn't, in, uh, there was no American that did that. We had people, a couple of guys, come from France. One of them was Alexis de Tocqueville. Came over here to study our prison system. They stayed for a while. They, they got in the churches. They, they checked the whole country out. They were shocked by what they saw. And it was de Tocqueville who said, who, who coined the phrase American exceptionalism because he said, America is great because America is good. But we've lost some of our goodness. And we haven't taken much of a stand. I think America's in trouble. Let me conclude with a little a bit of personal testimony. A lot of you know all about this, because I've been here longer than Methuselah. What you may or may not know I put that down so I can see people's faces. Put, 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 to put it down so I can see people's faces. I, here, it's important. What, what you do not know is that I grew up in extreme poverty. My father was a tenant farmer to my, and my uncle's big farm. I had an Uncle Robbie who married Daddy's sister, ain't by... And Daddy got paid 50 cents a day working on that farm. A few years later, Mr. Lyman Bradford said, Mr. Rollings, if you come up to my place, I'll let you have half a tobacco crop if you'll raise it and prepare it and sell it. Well, that's like hitting the lottery for poor people. I had two brothers, we were all the same. We had one pair of bibbed overalls and we had one pair of decent shoes and, the other, and we had a pair of work shoes and the rest of the time we went barefooted on the farm. My mother was a school teacher and I have some of her tax statements. She was making a grand total of $1,500 a year teaching Germantown Elementary School. My daddy was raised with 14 other children.
He grew up outside of Cynthiana, attended a little Baptist church there, and one of the women who attended that church became the banker's wife at Germantown, Kentucky. My daddy had saved $500 and was, because of that, was able to purchase a 127-acre farm with five, five acres of tobacco. That's a lot of work. He had $500 to put down. Mr. Fryman said, I know Mr. Rawlings to be an honorable person, a virtuous man. He keeps his word. He works hard. And so we were able to pay off that farm. And when I left the farm and went to Kentucky Christian College to become a preacher, by that time I had been adopted by an old man who had never had children and had become wealthy. He ran Brock Brothers Grain Company in Maysville, Kentucky. He actually grew up in Lewis County, close to Vanceburg. He bought me my first ball glove. It was a Rawlings, of course. <laughs> he bought me my first bicycle. It had knee action, and even the girls liked it. I had saddlebags on it. I was a, a hunk, as you know. I had, he bought me three cows, he bought me my first car, a 1953 Ford Victoria with sexy lights in the back that Alice Kay fell in love with. I went to Kentucky Christian College and when I got out, I, had, I didn't owe anything to anybody. Everything was paid. My parents couldn't have afforded it, but they helped any way they could. It was there that I met the most beautiful girl in Carter County and maybe in the state of Kentucky. She had a pretty face, long blonde hair, and a classy chassis. Now, she's not going to like what I say now because she told me when I said last night she didn't like it. But you got to say what you got to say. You got to have a free church, right? So I invited her to come to our house. Now, we, I never had indoor plumbing in my life until I went to college. We had a bathtub and a path to an outdoor toilet. Alice Kay came to visit us. She was from town. Her daddy was a plumber. They had all that stuff. And when mother said, do you want to go out and, and water the grass, Alice Kay thought she'd lost her mind. <laughs> it was a different world I grew up in. I went then to graduate school at Vanderbilt University, went, did youth ministry, had a church up in Illinois, came to Portsmouth. I've been here ever since. I took a job working, first of all, out at South Webster, and then other places. And I, I was really blessed. Alice Kay worked all those years. We made a lot of money. We spent a lot of money because we educated all five of our children. And when they got out of school, they didn't know anything. They were out of school. Everything was paid. In the succeeding years, the investments that I made made, them, made us what I think is wealthy. We're not multimillionaires or anything like that. But by my standards... We have a lot, and we give away a lot. 
we're now in a position because our kids and grandkids are out, we can give 30% of our gross income to the Lord's work every year. Now, I tell you that not to brag, but to tell you that I don't think it could have been anywhere, done anywhere else in the whole wide world except in America. And so if you think I'm kind of passionate about what I believe about this country, you're right on I am. I think this is the greatest place on the, and I've been around the world. I've been in every I've been in Australia, I've been in all in Asia, in China, India, I've been in South America, Central America, Australia. I've I've been all over the world. I have friends almost all over the world that I stay in kind of loose touch with. And every one of them and some of them are very wealthy, envy me because I'm an American, and they're not. Now, your story may be better than mine. I don't know, but here's my point. God, I believe God has given us a free land, and we're giving it away, and, I, and I've tried, I've racked my mind. If George Whitfield's preaching could bring people together and create this country, then why can't we have another great awakening that rolls across our land like a tidal wave where people by the millions come to Jesus Christ through the preaching of the Bible and being born again? And why can't our country keep that which God has given us? I don't think we're going to keep it any other way. So we have to have a free church. And we have to have preachers who will preach the word of God and be able, and if they throw us in jail, thank God because there will be people in there who can't get away from us and we can preach to them too. I think the time has come where we are proud of the fact that God has blessed us with all that we have. And I think we ought to do whatever is required. I said last night, and I know you may think I'm crazy, but I'd be willing to take up arms to defend what we have that God has so graciously given us. Our government would like to put me in jail for saying it, but that's the way I sincerely believe. So I've told you my story, and I hope that you will, on this time, on this Independence Day that's coming tomorrow, I, I hope that you'll take at least some time to say, God, thank you for what you've given us. And guide us with wisdom from above so that we can keep that which you've given us. A republic and not a monarchy. A, a country governed by the people and not by authorities. Oh God, help us to bring about a great awakening the third time. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. And all the people said? Amen. Well, cough up and go. All right.